Kindly open your Bibles to the Old Testament reading, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, found on page 668. There's also a sermon outline if you'd like to follow through with the sermon. We are now nearing the end of our journey through Ecclesiastes. Solomon has talked about pleasures, wisdoms, and politics so far. And today's passage is the final part of his message before the final recap that we will hear being preached next week. So let's pray and have a look at the passage. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you and we ask for your help. Open our hearts to receive your word. Convict us of its truth and change our hearts, Father, so that we will respond rightly. Help me to preach well. Help us to listen well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me tell you the story of Kyle. Kyle is a jobless 26-year-old who desired to own a house, but he had no steady job. Desiring to make his dream come true, Kyle took a single red paper clip, which he had with him. He went online to the internet, and he tried to trade for it. Someone traded the paperclip for a funny fish-shaped novelty pen. Kyle then continued making trades. The fish pen was traded for a handmade doorknob, which was then traded for a camp stove, which was then traded for a 100-watt generator, a snowmobile. And slowly, Kyle started getting things of greater and greater value. Eventually, Kyle managed to trade for a paid part to act in a movie by a big director. This then led to a mayor of a small city offering to trade a double-story farmhouse in exchange for the movie role. Kyle accepted the deal, and he who started with a single paper clip has a house now. It wasn't an overnight thing. It took him about 14 trades and over a year to achieve that. Now, how many of you own a paperclip? Makes you think, doesn't it? Today's passage also tells us something about toiling, investing, and reaping rewards. So come with me to the passage. Verse 1 starts very strangely. Verse 1, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Now, before you get ideas and start to rush out to buy gardenia loaves to chuck at the local lake, let me clarify. This is a poetic way to speak about something rather than it being a literal command. Now, there are different views on what this verse means, and I think it refers to the idea of bread as what you get through your toil and your hard work. It's not necessarily literally talking about bread, but it is what you have with you which is of value to you. If you're a farmer, maybe it's your crops. If you're a businessman, then maybe it's your money. So the preacher is telling you to cast your hard-earned possession upon the water in the hope that it will come back after many days. Now clearly, if you try this, you won't get anything back. So there's more to this. Now in the Old Testament, 
the term waters can be used to describe nations. Kind of how we use the term sailing the waters to refer to different countries. So for example, Babylon is described as sitting on many waters in the Old Testament. And this actually refers to the ports that is part of the economic activity that connects Babylon to the different nations. So understood this way, casting your bread on the water is talking about investing your earnings on ships that will sail to the other nation, trade your goods, and when they come back, they will bring a profit for you. However, we know that if we invest everything in the wrong trade, then all your money and investment is gone. Which is why the author teaches us in verse 2 to give a portion to seven or even eight. Seven is a number signifying completion or fullness. And eight is implying going even further than that. So what he's saying here is for us to be wise, to diversify, and invest in different things, in, an, in as many things as we can, so that our risk is mitigated, and therefore, we can be sure of getting some returns for our investment. Next, we see in verse 3 to 4, a continuation of this wisdom in investing. Verse 3, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the cloud will not reap. So verse 3 basically tells us that things sometimes just happen, and we are not in control of them. We don't have control over the rain, nor can we know where a tree will fall. We might be able to make a good guess, but ultimately, we don't control it. And so, we don't know for certain. Yet, we worry about the things we can't control, don't we? And that makes us hesitant about committing to things. So, verse 4 then takes the imagery of farming to teach us wisdom. If you are a farmer who keeps on observing the winds to determine the ideal time to sow your seeds and you hesitate, what happens? You may hesitate too much and miss the ideal time to sow. And you end up sowing at a bad time, which will lead to poor yield or even no yield. If you are a farmer who's ready to harvest your crops, but you're worried that it will rain, and because of that, you hold back. Because of your hesitation, you may end up harvesting at the wrong time, and you get a poor yield of overripe fruits. So, we are being called here to not hesitate too much because we know that we cannot have certainty in life. So we are to take chances wisely and keep on toiling. Now the big question, however, is what is this something that Solomon is asking us to achieve? It looks pretty straightforward that he's telling us to invest and make more money. But is that what he is actually saying? Now, I'll get there later. I just wanted you to have this question at the back of your head as we work through the text. Now, being told to take risks, that is going to make some people uneasy. So Solomon then strengthens his argument in verse 5. Verse 5, As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the works of God who make everything. 
See, here we see the difference between us and God. We may know how to make a child, yet we do not have the understanding of how life comes to the infant in the womb. We just do what we do and God takes care of things. So even in the things that we are fully involved in, even then, we are limited in what we know and in our ability to control the outcomes. Therefore, verse 6 tells us how to respond. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Picture a farmer who has sown his seed in the morning. In the evening, when others would retire to rest, this farmer is told he should continue working diligently, not withholding from working, even in the evening. See, you don't know what will happen, so hedge your risk by working hard and diligently and continually seek to produce more fruits and gains. The text tells us four times, you do not know. And the point is to remind us that God is the one who ultimately knows all things, works all things, controls all things. Therefore, there's no such thing as chance, actually. God is in full control, and so we just trust him, try to be diligent, and take wise risks. And with that, it seems like Solomon decided to change the topic abruptly in verse 7 to 8. Verse 7 Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. He talks here of the sweetness of light, which is pleasant. This is talking about the good times in life that we are called to rejoice in, the happy occasions, the anniversaries, the joy of fellowship and fun. However, this is Ecclesiastes, so the author adds in the harsh reality. Remember that the light isn't forever and the days of darkness, that is, suffering will come. So while we enjoy the sweetness of life, these days won't last. And some of you are enjoying now the sweetness of life, and some of you will be tasting the bitterness of dark days. This is just how life works under the sun. In verse 9, the same idea is linked to youth this time. Youth is enjoyable, so enjoy the days of vigor and strength. Verse 9 tells us to rejoice and be full of cheer. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, the text says. In other words, do what you desire. Do what your heart pleases. However, the author reminds the reader, but remember that for all that you choose to do, God will bring judgment. We will have to stand before God and give an accounting of how we spend our lives. So while Solomon is telling the young ones to enjoy their life, he warns them to remember the consequences that their actions have. So if you are young, enjoy it because you will eventually get old. If you are young, enjoy it, but remember, one day you will have to stand and be judged by God. Youth, 
the light, the dawn of life, as wonderful as it is, is still vanity. It will pass away. Which is why verse 10 tells us, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Don't be too sad if you're losing your youth or the happy times. Don't be too affected by the loss of the youth or the coming of the dark days. The term put away pain from your body can also be read as put away evil from your body. So even if you lose your youth and that joyful happy days, it's not the end. You can now be better able to put away the desires and lusts of flesh, which is harder to do when you're younger. You see, it is when you are afflicted and feeling broken that God's grace can be seen most clearly. It is in suffering that we can come to God more powerfully than when we are enjoying. So don't despair loss of youth. Don't despair the loss of happy times. We move on then to chapter 12, verse 1. Those with youth are reminded to remember the Creator before the coming of the dark days. This passage then reveals its main point. Remember God. Remember Him before it is too late. And then we come to the evil days described in verses 2 to 7 of chapter 12. And as you read through it, you will see that it is talking about aging, about how the body fails you as you grow older and older. Verse 2, the keepers of the house, your body, trembles. The strong man that has carried you, your legs, they are bent. The grinders, your teeth which grinds your food, does not work so well. And some have even fallen out, which is why the grinders have become few. You look through the window, but with dim eyesight. Verse 4, the doors are shut. In your old age, it's getting difficult to go anywhere. The fear of impending death and worry causes song and joy to melt away. The grasshopper, always pictured as jumping around, now crawls on the floor. The loss of virility and vigor until finally the cord is snapped, the bowl is broken, the pitcher is shattered, the body breaks down and death comes. With that, we come to verse 7. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, said the preacher. All is vanity. When you die, your body returns to the earth, dust to dust, ash to ash. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, because life is temporal. All the good things that you enjoy will come to an end. The one guarantee that we all have is that we will all die. And that is the end of the matter. Or is it? Notice that verse 7 
mentions that the spirit returns to God who gave it. Notice also how earlier in this passage, we see the mention that the spirit comes into the womb. What we have therefore is a link between the earlier passage that was talking about uncertainty. And this part of the passage, we talks about remembering God. And we see that they're actually connected. You see, we see the spirit coming into the child. Then we see the light of youth which fades away into the evening of old age until death comes and the spirit returns to God. And throughout all of this, you see two big themes. You do not know. And that is answered by the fact that only God knows. So we keep on trusting in him and carry on. And the second thing, remember God. So we live our life in response to the judgment and live our life in light of remembering God. Therefore, there is a link between the entirety of the passage and the preacher is not just changing from one argument about investment to another one about youth and old age. If we are called to live in remembrance of God, if we are reminded to not fear the unknown circumstances of life and hedge against it by being diligent, hardworking and wise, if we are reminded that ultimately all of us will die and we go back to God, then we will come back to the passage and read it differently. Then, when the preacher talked about sowing seeds in the morning and evening, we realize that he isn't just talking about being diligent in your daily working life in order to earn more money. In the context of this passage, it now has implications for stewarding your life in light of remembering God. In your youth, in the dawn of life, when you have the most energy, work hard for God. And in the evening, when you have become older and weaker, persevere on. Seek the fruit that pleases God. So you see, this is therefore a call to live a life of obeying God and serving others for the sake of not gathering treasures on earth, but to gather treasures from heaven. While the preacher talked about investing, casting your bread to the water, if we see it in light of remembering God, then this is about investing through charity, to doing good works, to do the things that pleases God. You see, what the preacher has done here is he's taken the wisdom of the world on this matter and then he has subtly applied it to God's people. So if you read this while remembering God, then you will see that we are called then to invest, be diligent, and devote our lives in light of the knowledge of God. And we are certain of that because God is certain, and we are certain that we will come before God and His judgment. You see, this is why the passage then ends with the Spirit returning to God upon death. If you have been faithful in your life, then your life is not vanity because you have hope in the mercies of God. However, if you have lived your life in the passions of your flesh without remembering God, then judgment awaits you and all the joy that you had 
would be in vain. And if you think this changes how he understands the passage, the gospel then turns the passage entirely upside down. How do we see toiling in the light of the gospel? We are called to not lay out treasures in the world, but treasures in heaven. And how does that look like? It is laboring for the gospel, isn't it? To bring God's word to others. And that would mean in the morning or evening, keep on working for the sake of the gospel. That would mean look for opportunities to take it, even if it looks risky, right? Sure, there may be risk. The person that you want to share the gospel with might get annoyed at you, or they might think less of you. But you do not know for certain how God is going to work in that person, right? So take the risk and toil to bring the gospel to them. Invite them to your homes. Meet them for coffee. Visit them. And do this to build relationships so that you can share the gospel. Gospel-centered investment would be investing in things or people that brings about greater fruit for the sake of the gospel. You see, even your time can be an investment. You come here on Sundays together with God's people to hear His word, to worship Him together, but how else can you optimize and use this time? Invest your time in the people around you. Read the Bible with them. Pray with them. Pray for them. Volunteer to serve in the service. Volunteer to join the choir. And if you're not doing any of this, if you're just here to come, sit, listen, sing some songs, and go back home, then you are being foolish, just like the farmer who sows only in the morning but holds back his hand in the evening. You're like that person who does not take the opportunity or take the risk. You're not making good use of that opportunity to invest in others. And the gospel also changes how you enjoy your life. Now, you don't need to rejoice in your youth or your good times. You rejoice in your suffering for the sake of the gospel. You rejoice for all the things that God brings to you, good or bad. You rejoice that you are considered worthy of suffering for the gospel. And you seek to live for God and die to yourself. And finally, even in the old age, or when you're facing terrible sickness, when the dark days come, as Christians, the gospel shows you the eternal hope you have in Jesus. And therefore, Christians are not worried about life being vanity. Christians can age well, can suffer well, can die well, knowing that Jesus has guaranteed them eternal joy and eternal life. And so, I will end with this one question. Kyle took a single paper clip and toiled until he ended up with a house. You have the eternal word of God that transforms and saves. How much more greater will the fruit be 
if you faithfully steward this word and toil for it. Trust in God, toil for the gospel. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have spoken to us through your word. Father, help us to be people who, who desire to toil for the gospel, that we will not hold back our hands, that we will look for opportunity. We look to how we can invest and build up each other. We will look to how we can bring the gospel to others. And Father, help our weaknesses in, in giving up on this too fast in saying that we will do these things and not doing them. Lord, we ask for your help, for only you can change our hearts. We ask this not for our glory, but for your sake, Lord, that your name be glorified above every name. We ask this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Let us stand and affirm our faith together in the words of the Apostles' Creed, which can be found on page 34 of the Yellow Service Book. Together we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, 